everybody. This is Heather Gold. I'm in Toronto, your co-host of Tumul Vision. And I'm here this week with just uh, your regular co-host, Kevin Marks. Hi there. Coming to you from You're San Francisco in, uh, tonight. In San Francisco tonight? In Salesforce's offices, yes. Fantastic. Deb uh, Schultz, unfortunately, will be with us tonight. We have a fantastic guest. So Tumul Vision is a weekly salon-style kind of podcast where we talk about uh, the kind of new networked life with some of the most interesting people we can find who we think are really connected to what we think is, is important in, in this new networked world, which is tumbling. Uh, what is tumbling? Tumbling is an old Yiddish word. It means literally noisemaker. It was someone who was hired to entertain at a wedding. But if you've seen, you know, Dirty Dancing, you may have seen, you know, people of the Catskills who would involve other people, uh, on the holiday in the show. So tumbling is the sort of way that you can manage in a, in a post command control world. And that's what we're moving into a more networked age where, uh, the rules aren't so certain and people aren't so sure how stuff works, but we are trying to explore things that are working and are exciting. And we have a wonderful guest here to do that with us this week. We'll first address a little bit about the week and then we'll go into her work in more depth. Sarah Zalavitz, Sarah, thanks for being here. It's Salavitz. Salavitz. Shit. <laughs> it's okay. If you ignore the first Z, it becomes much easier. Ah. Salavitz. Are you like the, is your family the only Jews in America who didn't change their name? Oh, we have a lot of different spellings. Ellis Island has uh, given us a lot of different spellings for bat mitzvah invitations. <laughs> All right. Salavitz. Sorry. Sorry, I got it wrong. So, Sarah, um, you did a lot of work in content for a long time, in video, and your focus has really come around um, social engagement and community building. Yeah, I like to think that I'm interested in the transformation of publishing into participation. Um, I think that, like, I was really interested in telling stories when very few stories reach people. But now I think that we've moved to a place where it's the systems that allow people to tell stories that have become how we reach people because now we're all able to actually, to, you know, to share those stories ourselves. So some of, maybe you can tell people a little bit about what you were doing before you sort of saw the shift happen, some of your background and then how, what you've shifted into doing since then. Sure. I like to think that my background like, has become progressively less behind. Uh, I started um, wanting to make movies, and then I wound up uh, working in politics. I worked for Willie Brown uh, when he was Speaker of the California State Assembly when I was in college. Uh, and I was really interested in the stories that politicians told to reach people. Um, and then I sort of decided that I, I you know, that the, the stories that we told through legal systems were... were interesting stories. And I was really interested in like the kind of work that Clarence Darrow did. And so at this point, my ambitions were about a hundred years behind. Uh, and so then I went to law school and I realized that I was less interested in the performance than I was in the way in which we were reaching people. And that the, the way I had sort of fantasized about the legal profession was very different than the way it had become in a hundred years. Uh, and so and when, you, when you fantasized about it, what was that fantasy about? I guess, I, I mean, I guess I'm sort of interested in how we can make the world a better place. 
and not that I don't think that lawyers make the world a better place. I think that they do. I just think that the way that we addressed the law when, when Clarence Darrow was a lawyer uh, in regards to like, say, evolution or the rights of criminals was very different than what we're investigating today. And the process is not as interesting to me as it would have been when it, when it was less defined 100 years ago. And what do you think we're investigating today? How would you put it? I mean, it's interesting to me just from what you've already talked about. Like, I have a very similar path. I wanted to make movies. I worked in the film business. I went to law school and I went to the web and then my work became social. So I've lived through a pretty similar path. I'm just curious how you would say, here's what I'm inquiring into or what you think the, the most pressing questions are. I think that it was also for me that, like, I really liked work and I didn't really like work as a lawyer. Like, I'm really good at work that's about collaboration and a lot of what legal work was, was very isolating. And I mean, maybe that's not the case in all kind of work, but it was it, the work itself wasn't for me. I don't think it's, it, it is the work that isn't world changing. Cause honestly, like it's pretty amazing what lawyers do. I just, I had, I loved what I had done in politics. I'd loved every job I had had and I didn't, and like I had the greatest job in the world as a lawyer. I worked at the department of justice in the civil rights criminal section um, during my first summer of law school, which is like, you know, you're prosecuting police officers who violate people's civil rights criminally. It's like, there's nothing sexier. Um, but I didn't like what the work was at that point in like where the law had gone and recognizing that like, it wasn't that interesting to me to perform in front of a jury in the kind of way that would motivate people through the more boring parts of the job. I realized I'm like, okay, I actually, this is just not the kind of work that I enjoy. Like it's for me, I am more a standards person than a rules person to begin with. So even applying it wasn't good for me, and it felt isolating. And for you, what's the difference between a rule and a standard? Well, rules, like, you know, it's sort of like, you know, when, there, when there's a rule, there are no exceptions for breaking it. When there's a standard, you're allowing for different circumstances to apply. And for me, like, that's, you know, my sort of sense of fairness is, is very much based on different sets of standards based on different circumstances rather than rules that apply to everybody in every situation. Kevin, do you think that that's also true technically, how Sarah's viewing rules and standards? So it's, um, we'll, be, we'll put it the other way around technically, but okay, so the difference between um, something that's legis legislative and something that's agreed, is, 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 that the, is that the sense you mean? No, I mean, I just think, I think we live within a system, and, and I'm, I haven't thought about this in a while, so my definition might not have been perfect. Uh, we live in a system that, it, that is rule-based, but I prefer a system that, like, it's some, you know, some, some things that we do in the legal system are standard-based, but we had, I think politically, we had moved towards a system that was like three strikes and you're out, rather than let's have different standards apply for different circumstances that people, you know, may have, you know, is the third strike so again, you, a pizza. So you're saying, you're saying you move to technology. So it would be less algorithmic than the law. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's not actually, actually what happened at all. So I wound up, I, I moved from the law because I just wanted I, the joke. I just wanted the joke. Sorry, go ahead. Okay. I'm like, no, no, no. I like algorithms. There's nothing wrong with a good algorithm. Uh, no, I, so I moved from law because it wasn't for me, and I wound up, uh, I came, you know, I came to Hollywood, I wound up working in the film business for a bit, and at the same time, the, you know, the first boom was coming about, and I kind of realized that, like, you know, the things were changing that we're having, or I guess it was actually the second boom, um, 
I realized that we were having, you know, that, that things were changing, that the system was going to break down, that we were going to have different sets of opportunities for people to tell these kinds of stories that had never happened before, that the change that was occurring was about how we were able to connect with people. And that was more interesting to me than protecting my friends' jobs as much as I may like them, uh, you know, in, in, in a particular kind of system that had maybe outlived its usefulness. So um, the move to, to the, you were doing video online with Rever. I know you did a lot of deals there, and I don't know that I knew your work before Rever, um, if it was always video online or not. I did not actually do any deals at Rever. I, I was at Rever at the very, very, very beginning um, before there were many people there, but I did lots of deals at VO, um, where Sorry, I, sorry, I'm mixing up my video startups, VO. It's okay. I just don't want to claim credit for other people's stuff. Uh, no, 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 that's my area. Saying the two startups up. Sorry, VO was no. Was VO uh, the one that was partially funded by um, Eisner? Yes, yes, it was. Is that right? Okay. Yes. Um, yeah, no, and it was like a kind of. It was a really fascinating moment. Like I sort of went there to hire my friends from film and TV to make stuff for the internet. And what wound up being apparent was that like that wasn't really what needed to happen. That people would actually make things for free. So I wound up, you know, making deals with people, and I discovered myself because I had, you know, as a person who cared about creating and telling stories, I really discovered that, you know, if people, if Michael Eisner, for instance, couldn't sell content at that point at a rate that was really going to pay my rent, I wasn't going to be able to sell content in the way that I had once imagined, you know, creating a studio. And so I created a a show with a a partner uh, called Zaproot, um, which was a green uh, sort of take a green comedic take on the universe. Uh, and we, you know, we learned pretty quickly that like we understood what the system was going to look like and we were able to build relationships with the right sets of partners. And we had the pleasure of working with next new networks and other, you know, different video distribution platforms as well. Um, and it was really interesting. Like what I really discovered was the work that I had imagined, like the fun part wasn't really the work the work was like getting people to watch my show. And so I kind of began to understand that like, you know, what, what my business aspirations were going to have to be, were about, we're going to be about encouraging participation rather than just enabling publication. And that became more interesting to me is like, how do we allow people to participate in a narrative instead of talking at them? That's interesting. I just, uh, John Hagel just did a post. We had a conversation about this in Australia where he was trying to distinguish between stories and narratives. And I think his interest was in something that people could participate in that was bigger than themselves. I have a hard time with those words meaning anything that different from one another to me. Story and narrative is just sort of, I've always used them the same way, but I yeah. do, but I do think that participation piece is, is the key piece. How is something open enough to ha- to ha- include others? Well, that's for, for me, like what the, what, what I think the focus for me has become is the shift from stories to systems. It's like before when there were only a few people who were privileged with, with the ability to publish, then, you know, it was a much more interesting thing to be, to be a publisher. Now, if you're building a systems that enable publication, enable sets of choices, you know, that's actually how you can impact reaching people. Because all of them, you know, you're enabling all of them to actually tell a story. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so 
Kevin, does this sound, I mean, I guess you've always worked sort of more on the technological side of things, but, um, well, I mean, but you wonder if you think, cause I, you know, I, I wanted to make films and do things, but my path into that was, um, taking a physics degree because you need a physics degree to become a BBC cameraman and then going through the technical side. So, that, um, and ended up in, you know, d- d- being, moving from the technical side of this to the, to the storytelling side of it too, in, in, in a sort of similar way. So from rather than going from the technology of, of, of filmmaking, moving towards realizing that the most important part is the stories and the people. I don't think, I think that what we're doing with this next generation is like we had, we had created silos around the creative and the technical, and those are no longer useful distinctions anymore. And I think maybe that's the same thing that you can say about the way that we use story as a tool. Right. And that's the thing is like the thing that I feel like I've been learning, like I just, I just taught like my first class um, this past semester. And the thing that I really learned is like one thing that, that I'm trying to get away from in my own work is not, is that I, I sometimes like I, there are outcomes that I want to create, but the real thing, the real goal is to try to create tools without forcing outcomes. Right. Yes. And that's great. Yes. Which say? Create generative tools. Yes. Well, that allow people to define their use instead of presuming that you know what they should be for. And it's a much harder thing to do. Like, I think, like, because I think a lot about how do we change, like, how do we, how do we construct a different way of doing business? And it's kind of like, you can know, I, if you, can I just go ahead. You just said, you said a bunch of things before we go to the different way of creating business. Cause I, I just want to dig a little deeper into something you said before. Uh, we've, we've talked a lot on the show about silos being kind of not useful in, in anywhere. That's part of what business and everything is changing. They're, it's kind of tough in that work world, the silo stuff. But when you were talking about that in filmmaking and storytelling, I think that's something people haven't talked about so much. Sarah, can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by storytelling playing a different function or that we kind of had it mistaken as a tool? That's what I, I heard you, you mentioned that kind of. I think that I, I think what it really is becoming it's just sort of the same thing. It's like when only certain people got to tell stories, they also got to define their structure and their prescriptiveness. And now that everybody gets to tell stories and participate in the construction of those kinds of stories and narratives, be it you know in journalism or in fictional storytelling, it creates a different kind of dynamic. And I think it also allows us to to be more creative about the way we use them and the way we structure them. So uh, let me be a little bit more concrete. When we look at that, like journalism is the easiest example. It's like we wind up constructing a very different narrative when the people themselves are participating in the reporting than when someone is, is going there and telling you what's happening. Right. So, and I think the same thing is happening to storytelling too. Like a long time ago, a long time ago, like six or seven years ago, uh, I had lunch with Paul Schrader, uh, who wrote uh, Taxi Driver and, and lots of, and has directed lots of movies. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and we were talking about this dynamic, and what he was saying is he was like, you know, by the time kids are, I guess, you know, 12, they've seen 10,000 hours of, of TV and they know the structure of law and order. They know the third person is the, is the killer. And they recognize these kinds of formulas. And what it, what it means is, is like, you know, we've created a structure both for film and television that, like, 
it was kind of no longer interesting. And he was saying right, this. Right. He said that it's no longer, it's like, art explores boundaries, not maintains them. I've said the same thing for uh, a while, except that I always put it was that I feel like generations, uh, you know, ours and a bit below are narratively saturated. And so the only way to keep uh, engagement has traditionally been, I mean, it, a lot of people believe story is, and structure for story is just sort of some kind of truth, like in physics, and it has to work a certain way and it can't change. And we'll just always do it because it's inevitable. I mean, I hear that many, many, many times for people. And, and I, I think... Wait, I, actually do, I do actually agree with a lot of that. I actually think that there are certain things that you have to do in stories to make them interesting. Like, it's not that I don't think that you have to have conflict. Like, you do. It's boring otherwise. Like, there are certain, like, rules like, that, that, that are otherwise uninteresting for people to follow, and they don't necessarily make up what people consider maybe a story. But the way that we're structuring... The, the structure of a story is not the story. That it has, like, I'm not, everything should have a beginning, middle, and end. I'm not violating that rule. What I'm saying is, is the way that we have the number of beats in a sitcom and the number of minutes in a film, that is not about story. Right. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> Sorry. But there's, there's so also... You're talking about a certain form that we've come, but we've come to see as inevitable. We have to have a certain way. Yes, and that's what he was saying. And I wanted to... Go ahead, Kevin. A, a, a Paul, what Paul Strader was saying was that, like, in the same way that, like, theater and plays had to change and shift structure, you know, we also have to look outside of the, outside of the way that we have created film and television. And, you know, that's kind of what, what you know, we have seen happen in the years following the comet. You were just saying something about how Paul Schrader was, was not saying that the sort of deeper structure of beginning, middle, end or conflict isn't there in story, but that a certain form of... of of story we've used around a sitcom or something has become so pervasive that it was so predictable that it wasn't interesting anymore. Is well, that right? Yeah, that that's it. And I mean, it's basically it's in the same way that like theater became boring or the, or the novel that, you know, included hundreds of pages of details about agriculture. Yes. Russian novelists, I'm calling upon you, uh, you know, became, we, we, we adapted past them. Our art pushed past it. And it wasn't, art has never been about maintaining the same way of telling a story. And I guess I think like, you know, I, I do actually, what I was also saying, I think he does agree with this. And I also do agree with this. I think that there are certain pieces that, that are universal. I mean, conflict seems fairly an obvious one that, that you know, you can't really get past in telling a story that's going to be interesting. You, you, there are certain structural elements that are important but that is that doesn't necessarily mean uh, relate to how many beats you needed the sitcom, right. right? I think that to me they get confused. I mean, one thing I, I, I've explored a lot with the show tumbling I've done that I found is I, I think conflict, which yes is necessary, but has been has been kind of abused. In what, at least what I see a lot that's made it's like well, if we can increase the conflict louder and louder. Uh, then, then somehow that'll, that'll keep the engagement and the energy and in, in the experience as opposed to at least what I've started doing, I don't know how many years ago, which was having more people involved and having um, the conflict try to be more universal engagement with the problem, which is just what I saw happening in gaming. I mean, gaming's done that for yeah. more people. We're talking about different things. Like if we were going to see a feature film, you know, like I, that, and I, what I'm talking about, I think it relates to telling a story rather than solving a problem. And it's right. not, I, I mean, like, I'm talking about at the very base core elements of what makes things interesting 
you know, to, to hear. Right. But how much, well, you're, you're separating telling a story from solving a problem, but to what degree is experiencing a story the same thing as trying to solve a problem? I think stories can solve problems. I just, I just think that what, like, I'm, I am talking about things when, when I, when I was speaking of Paul Schrader, I'm talking about entertainment, you know, and the structure that entertainment has chosen, which I wouldn't say is the same thing that, like, I don't think the sitcom formula is, 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 has applied uh, in trying to solve problems. You know what I'm saying? Mm. But, mm-hmm. there's, uh, but there's also, I mean, there's also this, the Stephen Johnson argument that. Um, Part of the reason that the narratives have changed from television is that um, it's no longer a see it once culture. Um, you can you can see it at will, uh, and you can have conversations about it with lots of people. So you can actually build a much more um, complete narrative now because there's the assumption you can have more backstory. So the examples of the um, instead of the sitcom or the the soap opera having the same arc for every show, and that you only ever see them once, or maybe you see them a few years later in reruns you have something that has a much more detailed narrative like like Lost or, or one of these shows that is designed to be very dense um, with the presumption that many of the people watching it will go away and construct their own narratives around it as well. I agree. And I think that, that in those years, there are examples where that has certainly happened. And I, I'm, I'm not trying to say that, like, you know, that there is no creativity. I think that you know, since that period of time, which was you know, six or seven years ago, we, you know, I think a lot of things have happened in the television, you know, have happened in the television businesses since then. And, I, you know, honestly, there's a lot of amazing things happening in storytelling uh, that have changed since that statement was made. Yeah. So yeah. I, I don't I guess I, I don't want to and I actually I agree with the statement. I'm just I'm just not sure that we haven't advanced past the point where he was talking about it. That like historically, I think. <laughs> I'm a little confused. You're not sure we have an advance. Maybe you just bring it back well, to the concrete. When Paul, so made follow. Statement, when Paul made the statement, we were not at the place where lost, like it was pre lost. It was pre game of Thrones. It was before we had used those sets of possibilities in the way that I think we are doing now. Mm-hmm. Say a little bit more for people who don't know lost or game of Thrones, but what you think has happened. This is, this is an episodic television you're talking about that you think is, is sort of adapting and evolving past where it was to keep engagement there? Oh, I think I'm just agreeing with Kevin that I think that we have actually, that there's a number of different ways that we have allowed users to participate in storytelling, both for the reasons that they're going to watch it more than once and understand that like they want to come back and understand the details. And also because we've, we've, we've included different sets of possibilities of how you can participate, you know, in whatever those, you know, whatever those shows are. Right, so it becomes less of a static, passive, one-time thing. Yes, so we are adapting, um, and you know, it isn't just about those. Those kinds of shows maybe aren't going to be as successful. At the same time, some of them are, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that either. Uh, It's you know, big movies and being entertained and relaxing and actually seeing stuff is also not going to go away either. There's kind of like what what I what I said. What I'm trying to avoid doing in in this conversation is is. uh, taking a polar position because oh we don't i don't think we we certainly don't want you to take a polar position i just want to know what you think <laughs> i hear you i just for some reason i i, I just wanted to be I, I had felt like something had come out come come across as more polar than i had intended it oh i might just not be understanding you i'm trying to ask for clarity not because <laughs> i have some attached i, I under I, i'm sure i have some answer because i'm not i just can know what i've seen so far I, it, it's so do you feel like um the entertainment business itself. I mean, I don't want to talk about it too long before we can get more to kind of um, 
uh, participatory environment creation. Well, maybe that's the same thing. Do you, to what degree do you feel like uh, Hollywood gets that that's more of their job now? Do, is that there or no? I think actually that's kind of the amazing thing that's happened in the past couple of years. Like I would say a year ago when I was really sick of Los Angeles, I had felt like it had become part of my job to tell people that things were going to change, which, you know, is hard for people to hear and honestly a bit boring for me and kind of, you know, it's hard to give people news that they don't want to hear all the time. And it's, you know, broken record feeling, but maybe that's what people's jobs are is to be broken records. I kind of have begun to recognize that anyway. Uh, But it, it had felt like, you know, people were projecting their jobs, which wasn't interesting to me. And I feel like across the board in the past year, there's been a dynamic shift. People have left, the business has shifted, and there just is a new kind of energy around possibility. And I also think that there's a new generation of people that accept that their jobs are to do the things that aren't that much fun. So, like, it's not their entitlement to do X, Y, and Z. It's like they actually have to do all of it. And there's no sort of, there's no static about that because that's what they've known how to do since they were 16 and now they're 22. Well, I mean, listen, like the things that I think are my job are like, you know, getting people to engage with stuff rather than actually the making of the stuff. Like the fun, the part that might be the funnest, the writing or the directing or the whatever is not what you think is your only part of your job. Like actually it's like getting people to give you money or getting people to show up or whatever it may be, whether you're a musician or director or whoever, all of those responsibilities are yours now. And you didn't come up with a system that understood otherwise. Oh, I see. Okay, because I, I was the, the other conversation that I've been part of this week has been around gamification of work, which was something that was been bouncing around a lot. Um, and there, there was a sort of a strong debate over intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. So there's things you do because you enjoy them, and they and they make things better. And there's things you do because you've got to do them to get paid. Um, and it, it sounds like you're, you're, you're saying that there was, there was a sort of creation space that meant you could do these things and someone else would worry about getting you paid, and now you have to take on some of that yourself. Is, is that the, the sort of split you're talking about? There, there's, there's two thoughts within there, and I want to move into yours, but answer the, the end of prior thought first. Um, I think that work is what people have to pay you to do. I don't think that doesn't mean that you can't give me gold stars and make me want to do it more. And I'm much more interested in figuring out how to build systems that encourage that kind of participation, be it for work or for entertainment or whatever, than I am in pushing stories of people. More interesting piece of it to me is like, why, why am I going to do whatever I'm going to do? And how do I encourage better outcomes and better possibilities for people? So like, I'm interested in figuring out, you know, what the questions that we, we, we should be asking people to encourage the best results are and, like, how we encourage that kind of motivation more than I am in helping to privilege their stories. Right. And I think for me, like, going back to the prior question about Hollywood, like, for me, like, I feel like that's the part that I have understood for a while and now they're getting there and that's awesome and, like, uh, but for me, like the next, the next question becomes about how do you build systems that encourage that kind of participation? You're focusing on on wanting to create systems for participation, but do you see Hollywood as as trying to do that as, as well? Is that what you're saying? They get that they're trying to create systems of participation. Um, I guess it's like it's a generational question in a lot of ways. Like, yes, they definitely are. 
I just, it's, it's more like my sets of friends are doing the things that they do that they're awesome at. And so, and I've moved in a way that like, I'm like, those aren't the things that I necessarily want to do anymore. Like I learned how to do those things and now I'm applying them. And the funny thing is, and I guess I feel like this is, this is, you know, the lesson of all my many careers at this point, you know, I'm sort of bringing, bringing something together to do something bigger. Uh, and I've learned certain sets of skills and I, like, I, I guess, I want, I've moved past that side of my own aspirations. And I think that Hollywood itself has actually moved into a creatively applying them. Um, so I don't know. I guess that I think that both of us are, are happy in our different directions. So when did you start understanding the sense that it was not about, as you're saying, privileging stories, which is an interesting and kind of political way of putting putting it, I don't know how much people in Hollywood view what they're doing as political, but um, trying to... to behave like a bit of Hollywood as quickly as possible, but I'll say this one last thing. It's simple math. It's like we live in a system that published three channels and then 10 channels, so 12, 50, 100, a million. When there was three channels, it was awesome and really interesting to get your stories told. When there's three million stories being told at the same time, it becomes a lot less easy to reach people and to impact people through your stories. My motivations for wanting to be in the storytelling business were about wanting to reach people, which I don't think, which I think is increasingly difficult to do through those stories in the way that I cared about doing. And in the same way that I felt about law. And so for me, like, I think the way that you do do that now is through the systems and through through the encouragement of participation rather than through telling the stories, which is what I thought I wanted to do. And I don't, there are many people that do want to do that, and I think that's awesome. I'm, I just, it's for me, my goal is about the transition from that kind of, that kind of publishing into participation without, without any value judgment towards the goals of Hollywood. Um, and I like, you know, working with people in Hollywood to help them figure out how to shift their systems rather than how to shift their stories. Because I think that that's the other thing for me that I've learned about work. It's like, for me... I have lots of ideas and lots of creative story ideas that I will continue to participate in, in bringing about because I like doing it. I don't necessarily have to define that at work as, as work as I would do it anyway. The things that people have to pay me to do, which you know I can then charge more for, are, you know, don't tend to be th- those things. Um, that shifted the way that I think both about work and about about where I want to participate in that. And what I discovered, like when I was more of a producer was that an awful lot of people wanted to do it and would be very willing to undercut me. Right. And that, you know, for me, I don't really actually want to forget about my value. But that doesn't mean I don't want to tell stories. It just means maybe I don't want to do that professionally. Does that make sense? No, I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense around your own journey, the way you changed. I mean, it's similar to a lot of what I know I've experienced I'm just interested in how the insight came to you, Sarah, that that you wanted to build systems of participation. I guess it sounds like you feel like you always did, but just kept moving from one area to the next where it seemed like you could be most effective. And I mean, now that that's how you're sort of articulating what is it you're doing, um, what that what that means. We're getting one one question here. I think was it Myers or someone was saying, you know, what is what is participation? So I, those are two different questions. There, one is how you, you kind of realize that this is what it, it is that you were doing, except now, what does that mean? Designing outreach plan, designing sites, you know, what does it look like for you? So I, I wound up doing a lot of different things for a lot of different clients. Um, and, and 
this year has been a widely unusual because I can't tell you how many from teaching a class this semester to doing work for different kinds of clients than I've done before um, to exploring like another opportunity. Uh, it's been, it's been a really, I've learned more this year about different things than I could have ever imagined. But what I realized, like what, what is, what has wound up interesting me, the things that like I want to be doing rather than sometimes the things that I'm being paid to do, I'm much more interested in figuring out how we create systems that encourage people to participate. And sometimes it's about which questions that we ask, you know, be it from job applications um, to what we ask of students to what we ask of our employees. Um, and an example I like to give a lot, um, which is which sort of reflects Sheryl Sandberg's talk, is that like when I interview people for a job, if I ask a guy if he knows how to use Photoshop, he doesn't, and he says yes, because what he thinks he's being asked is, can you figure it out? When I ask a woman if she knows how to use Photoshop, she says no, and she does, but she thinks she's being asked if she's an expert. So the question I should be asking is how good are you at Photoshop? Because the point is, is like, I actually want the answer, not to actually have them hear something different. And so for me, it's become about like, how do we define different sets of questions based on different goals? And how do we build those questions into our workflow? And so it's moved away from reaching, you know, I guess externally and more into the internal functions of, of, of building operations and building products. Um, and I think that, like, you know, story plays a, a role in that. But it's more, I think, about, I think that story is a feature rather than the purpose. That, yeah, I mean, that I know I found at one point when I was asking myself doing shows, you know, why I was why did I want to tell stories? Why did I want to make movies? It, they were pretty simple. Some simple. I also liked telling stories. It's like the act of it. But I started asking, asking how can I add value to the network? Because the people I was learning from were, you know, people building Flickr and whatever that the people we know and um, are on the web. And they were inspiring me. And I realized that people were going to shows for each other. And so I started trying to figure out how that's where the tumbling came from for me was this act of how can I help that happen since that's why I think they're here and, and maybe one of the social functions that storytelling plays. It's a feature to the social engagement, not um, its own, you know, just its own end. At least that's what it seemed like for me. Yeah, no, and I guess for me, I'm not, a, I, like, I don't, I don't think of myself as a person who likes to be a performer, which is partially no, why, either. like, the legal was not interesting to me. I'm interested in how you're saying if storytelling is a feature, then what is it a feature of? Like what are, I'm just trying to get, I, I viewed it as a way to get to social engagement. I started to see it that way. What other than participation, is participation its own ends for you? Like what is it, is the thing that, well, that you're looking at? I'm sorry, I, I, I don't want to be as vague as, I, as I'm being. I think that like, uh, it, uh, what, what I find as a consultant is people hire you for a variety of different reasons, and you don't actually wind up doing what, what you usually have signed up to do far in advance of well, when it seemed relevant, it doesn't become relevant by the time you signed a contract. And so I wind up helping uh, often to redefine processes to reach the goals that people are seeking. So the way I can define this pretty simple, I'll go in some place and they'll have a solution for something, be it like creating a web video series or uh, you know, doing some sort of advertising or outreach campaign or making something, whatever it may be, making a particular product. And the question that, you know, I start with is like, okay, 
would you do what you're asking other people to do? Yes. And the answer is generally no. Yes. And so, like, I come back in and I design, like, I help to look at what their process is and I use what I call social design, which is sort of the transformation of publishing into participation, to help them look through different lenses to define a process in, in a different way that they would use and would reach their goals. Instead of building another thing that, like, no one is going to actually want to do. Like, I don't think, I mean, this is just sort of an example that I'm asked about a lot. It's like, I understand the value of, like, a billion likes on Facebook if you're Coca-Cola. I don't understand the value, if you're a small company, of having an employee dedicated to getting people to click something that they're never going to return to. So, like, I often think that, like, where we're at is we create metrics. God bless you, Sarah. (laughs) We often these kind of metrics that I, I would say are rules that mean nothing instead of actually looking at what the standards are for your success and your set of goals. And so like, you know, it winds up being a lot of strategic work and like helping people to figure out what those goals are and what are ways to reach them that do allow people to do things that they want to do. So like, you know, if you're a car, like let's say you were a car, uh, a rental car company, you know, building an app that, tells you about all of the exciting cars that you rent. Yeah, I understand why that's great for a variety of reasons other than the other, everybody other than the user. What the user wants is like the ability to find their lost car. Right. So I don't, I just feel like what what my role really winds up doing is like asking what the user would do and, and using social design through that kind of process to figure out how you can best reach those goals. I think that we are moving from publishing to participation. I think media is becoming a component of every business. And so I'm interested in how that becomes part of the process in products that can actually change the way we live rather than report upon it. Well, and so is is from stories to like behavioral economics and and, uh, products. So when you talked about how can you get people to participate or engaged, do you really feel like, and you talk a lot about systems, but I guess it's tumbling. We feel like there's a, don't you feel like there's a role of a person to play, or do you really think you can have just pure systems do that on their own? I don't think it's, I think it's definitely people are involved. It's not like I think, and I, I also think that like, again, like coming back to sort of something I said at the beginning that like is really important for, for this is like thinking about, how we develop tools rather than, than than presuming that we know what the outcomes ought to be is a really important first step. Like if, if we're actually trying to get people to participate. So something that, that struck me about this uh, is that um, I was, you know, having been very down on live television for the last five years and only wanting to watch recorded stuff, I suddenly find myself being drawn back to it because now I have the ability to make jokes about it with people on Twitter. Um, yeah. Absolutely, and so that um, that model is 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 suddenly you know that that's gone through a complete inversion for me, from being okay, I have to watch this live to great, I can watch it when I feel like to oh, if I don't watch the royal wedding in the middle of the night, I won't see all the funny things people in England say. Yeah, no, it's definitely true. It's totally changed the dynamics of it. I just think that like where like less so like you know because I maybe it's because I'm annoyed that I'm in LA instead of back in New York. <laughs> Uh, I think that like where we're really changing things though is the way that we envision products and our, and our, our sense of entitlements to them. You know, we now think like, you know, in ways that we didn't think that people should respond to us before 
there's now a kind of entitlement to participate in the in the products, in those brands, in those in those stories themselves, instead of just being recipients of them. Right. Yes, and that's, I mean the other thing is that the sort of the explosion of fan fiction means that that can um, the, 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 the narrative is not something you wait for. The narrative is, is something you remake. Yeah, well, I just, I keep trying to get us past entertainment because I don't Sorry, I, like okay. like because I don't I just think that a like I, I I fear that I'm saying the things that many other people have said about entertainment and I don't want to. Uh, and I think I, I think it's true. I like, actually yeah. don't think so. I, I, I okay. All right. I well, haven't heard many people say some of these things. Believe it or not. I mean, I we talked to you and I maybe about a little bit. All right. If you really want me to talk about Hollywood, I will, I'll talk no, about. No, 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 no. It's more about one. No, I want you to talk about what you're interested in. It's just it's interesting to follow your path. We even had uh, many people in the show who worked in the in the content business the way you have, and because of the shift you made, I'm interested in you, in how it came to you, how it made sense to you, which I think you, you shared with us. Yeah. And why? Yeah, no, yeah, no, no. So we that. I try and then the questions that are driving you, what are interesting you, and you are interested in creating systems of participation. But part of uh, why, at least I found, we found something interesting is it seems to be this kind of human skill uh, of helping engagement continue. To, and 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 then how do we get better uh, coded systems to support that? And how do they work together? I, I did feel like we're in a pretty early stage of this, very early stage of these questions and. Other than the conversations we've had in the show, I haven't seen too many folks focusing very much on what, you know, how it usually is just seen, I will stick a tool up and people will show up. Yeah, no, and actually, I mean, that's what I think has become more interesting is how we figure out what are the questions to ask, what we can ask of people and how we ask them. Like, how we, you know, how do we encourage their participation and, like, where are we then crossing the lines of morality where it's it's not okay that like if we can't resist buy one get one free then is it okay to have buy one get one free so i i I think that like i guess really what it is and like maybe this is me being being elitist um i love storytelling and i want lots of people to be i'm I'm more excited by lots of people being able to do it than it it being then then kind of facilitating its privilege and so the more that I, I move, you know, towards behavioral economics um, and towards companies that are exploring bringing participation in as they shift from publishing, I don't know, the more interested I find myself being. Because I think otherwise, like, the hard part in working in Hollywood is that I think that that's what my, my job winds up becoming, is, like, helping people to figure out how to use the system to make sure that they're monopolizing attention. And, like, I get it. That's what their job should be like you should as a content creator want to get people to watch your stuff Kevin are you still there yes yes I'm just making sure systems staying together so you're talking something uh here wants to know uh as you speak when you're talking about creating systems of participation can you give us an example of what you mean yeah I mean the system so I'll get I'll I'll give it I'll go off the track here so uh my boyfriend's uh, company, Water Canary, which, which I advise on, is that what they've done is they've developed a product um, that tests water to see if it's safe to drink. And, like, it, it, currently the way it works is, like, you need a scientist and 18 hours and $10,000 of, t- of equipment to test whether water is safe to drink. And they've developed this really cheap tool 
that will help you to be able to tell instantly. And so like in times of disaster, you'll know whether you can drink the water. And so you'll, A, lots of people won't die. And B, like we can save lots of money on shipping water. And so, but what the, what changes here is like the way that like we have previously thought of water quality is it's basically the responsibility of the government to tell you. And what this does is this puts it in the hands of everybody. And so the question is, is like, how do you build a device physically and how do you build a system online that allow people to participate all over the place, no matter what their sets of skills are and what their, what level, you know, what level they're, they're living at and what kind of access they have to various pieces of technology. And so it's sort of like, you know, it's everything from the design of the product to figuring out what questions you can ask people to what symbol you're going to use to show people that the water is safe to drink. And so some of the things that like, you know, that, that I, that I like talk about in terms of, of social design is like, you know, you look at, there are various ways that you can, you can, there are various different levers that you can look at, you know, ranging from, you know, how transparent a pro a project is to, um, how much it is encouraging participation over publishing, whether or not, um, whether or not it's whether or not it's actually geared towards the person that's making it or geared towards the person who's going to be using it. Um, I actually I'll, I'll post them because I'm not remembering them off the, off the top of my head. But I sort of have seven precepts that I've designed this sort of social design workshop that was the first incarnation of the class that I just taught uh, this past semester. Uh, and I will I'll share I'll share a link. But I think it's actually on uh, the Tumblr site that we have for the class as well. And, and uh, Kevin, go ahead. No, no, I wasn't saying anything, sorry. Oh, that's what I thought you were about to. Uh, is this, uh, Lucy speaks asking, is this is like the kind of gamification that Jane McGonigal talks about? I mean, Jane also has a performance studies background. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, what, what's, I want to know on a tumbling level what you feel, where you feel like there's people involved, say you're designing the, the water testing system. Well, that's um, the, where that's people have to show up. Well, that's the coolest part is like, you know, what they're doing is they're, they're creating this device that like people, the only way it's going to work is if people use it and share the information. So, you know, what incentives do you build? It is, it, you know, social, it is one element of social design is gamification, but gamification like isn't, doesn't necessarily have to be transparent. I, I would, and I actually also would say that like social design presumes, it, 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 it suggests in the very word social that the outcome is about creating a better world, a better outcome, whatever that may be, and however you may define that. But it's not about, you know, trying to rip people off. Um, but so in the design of the product itself, it's sort of like, uh, you know, lots of people have to be able to use it. And so do you, you know, what, not only do, how do you design the device itself so that like people aren't encouraged to steal it, but like what incentives do people actually have for sharing this information with everybody else and with the world? So obviously there's the, like, there's the piece that like, you know, it would be nice for them to know if it's safe to drink their water. Um, and th so that's, that's a very good starting point for, as, as, as incentives go, you know, health and safety and not dying are, are, are at the top of the list. Um, but, you know, the other piece of it is, is that like, you do want to make sure that you're building as few steps as possible to allow people to participate in making the world a better place. I mean, it sounds like user experience design. Kevin, how, where do you think the the role in this is for, is there, is there a need for tumbling in this kind of say this water drinkability system or is, does it not have a place? Oh, sorry. And I left out the most important part about it. It's like, this is the other piece of like in the design of the water canary itself. It's like what they're doing is they're using spectrometry 
Um, they're effectively sign, like shining light through water to test it. What they're doing is they're also allowing users to help figure out other ways of allowing you, you know, other ways of using the device, other things that it could be good for. So yes, part of it is user experience, part of it's interface, part of it's behavioral economics, um, part of it's common sense, uh, and part of it's you know social psychology. Right. So so um, sorry, I was uh, I wanted to. Part of it's physics. I'm sorry. Let's not physics. forget physics. Oh, everything you mustn't forget physics. Um, yeah. So one of the things that uh, the sort of gamification debate that's been going on this week has been uh, sort of pushing back on superficial. Um, cargo cult gamification. Um, and th there was this great presentation by Sebastian Deterding, um, who talks about that there's, there's more than one kind of game. There's the, the ludic kind of game, which is around rules and um, exploring within a rule set. And then there's the playful kind of game, where you're actually doing improvisation and, and sticking things together. So his example of the ludic game would be Go or Chess, where there's a rule set, but a bunch of variations within that rule set. Whereas the playful game is more like Lego, where you have lots of pieces that you can um, construct something bigger out. And the point of building something that is actually gameful um, is that you have to be um, exploring a space in one way or another, um, and it's constructing constraints to help people explore this space rather than constructing constraints to herd them through a funnel. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I, I sort of, here's the thing, is that I think that part of the challenge with, with the conversations about games, gamification, and gaming, is that we're so often lumping Lego in with designing better systems to work at Microsoft. They're just not the same things and don't have the same purposes. And so... I, and I don't. I also don't think it's useful to like define things as having a point or not having a point because that suggests that not having a point doesn't have a point, and not having a point is very useful. We all know right. that. Uh, so, you know, I don't know. Like, I, 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 I. This is the part of me that is, uh, despite the fact that I've become more academic, that gets concerned that we're 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 parsing things instead of uh, redefining them. Does that make sense? Um, yes. Yeah. No. I think. I think this was. The, the... Yeah. 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 Which is. I just want to say a little bit more about that to draw that out. So you mean. You mean that. Especially academically, you just try to distinguish this is this, not that, as opposed to just practically getting down to how many how many that's like seven. A bit. You were a little bit broken up, so I'm not sure. But I, I think there is there is some of it's not the just doing it part of it. It's also just like because I don't think it's like yes, there's the just do it. That's we all should just do it. But there, there's also that we're actually falling into the same systems that we're trying to like get ourselves out of by defining them in the same way that we used to academically. And, and I'm I'm not sure that those distinctions are as useful as we we are, are trying to make them. And I guess that was the point I was trying to make about pointless games versus games of the point, but it might have been too pointed. <laughs> and on that note, I would highly recommend the animated movie from the 70s narrated by Ringo Starr called The Point, which is about a boy born in a land called The Point where everything has a point except for him. And he learns by going to the pointless forest that you don't have to have a point to have a point. Oh, I like that. I have to look for that. <laughs> it's great. It's narrated by Ringo Starr. And it's Harry Nilsson music. It's fabulous. Anyway, a, a slightly pointless divergence. 
Uh, yes, oh, it's I good to have pointlessness as we've established, as you established. <laughs> I, fe- I, I fear academia in the same way that I fear polar answers, I guess, like on that kind of stuff. And I guess like some of the game conversation, like some of the game conversation and the gamification stuff is so psychologically bound up in the word game that like, I have found that like when I'm working with some of my larger corporate clients, the perception, the use of the word gamer for gamification colors everything and it means that that it's it's not perceived as serious right and like the truth is is yes of course that's what i'm doing it's like the, the part of what it what it is is about figuring out game dynamics and working out how you don't discourage people from doing what you want them to do which so often we seem to be determined to do Well, I mean, isn't the the going to um, whether it's gamification or I need to face likes? It's just a look for something to solve the thing you're anxious about. Oh, I want people to, you know, come around and support the thing I already do. And what's a quick new hooky way to make that happen? I, I see the other thing happen with gamification. I mean, you say people take it seriously. I think sometimes people take it as some kind of magical answer to Magic deeper human. Well, people Problems. aren't. What's that? People aren't good at it, so you don't really. There aren't that many people that are good at it, so you don't. You don't need to be that worried. Like, yes, everybody is trying to use little catchy buy one get one free whatever button you should whatever flashing button wherever quarter of the screen that you should have it in. Yes, you always have to presume that we're all going to be trying to do to be doing that. But it doesn't really like if you don't get to the core question of what those goals are. It never works for very long. We're, we're not that. We're, we're pretty fickle. And eventually we can see, see past those sorts of things. And I, I guess really what it is is, like, I think we're getting to a place where we can ask better questions. Yes. And, like, where we have... Why? Like, well, I think that that's what all this... That, like, all the data that we're, we have access to and all the systems that we're building and all the openness that we're sort of wiring in allows us to figure out these things in ways that we just never could before. And, like, part of that's super scary, and part of that, like, begs a bigger moral question than, like, even, like it's, some of this is being asked by people that are talking about behavioral advertising and stuff like that. But I think, you know, it's a bigger question, like, you know, because of physics and, and common sense and lots of other things, our brains are wired a particular way. You know, there's a question of fairness at some point, and there's also sort of, like, you know, there's also how far do we get to go? Like how far, you know, if we know what the answer we're trying to, if we know we can get the answer we're seeking to encourage, is that okay? Hold on. So I I, I don't have to, we're getting near the end here and I want to make sure I'm following the last thing you said and I didn't quite get it. You know, go ahead. Uh, I can, I can tell. I mean, basically the question I'm asking is, is like, how far is too far? How, if we know, if we have enough information to, to say that we can encourage a particular outcome with users, you know, be it if we, you know, 75% of people can't resist buy one, get one free, when does that become not okay? If our brains are just wired that way. Right. Or, or if there are well, some people who are wired that way um, and you can pick them off. You can yes. know in advance that, that, um, and do different things to those different people and suddenly... Um, you're getting things that are targeted at you very strongly. This is part of Eli Pariser's thing of if you can, um, when you start doing different things for different people, if you segment off the people who have poor impulse control and give them different ads, you're, you're causing trouble there too. That's 
the part I agree with on him. The part I don't agree with on the on the filter piece is that I just think at the end of the day, we can all always live in a cave surrounded by the things that like the voices we want to hear, and that's what we do no matter what anyway. Like I actually like think that being disagreed with is a compliment. So I do seek out people that disagree with me who know that that when I disagree with them, that's what it is. Is that like I I respect them enough to actually disagree with them. Right. So, I don't know. I don't agree that like you know it's worrying that you're not going to get Republican news or this or that. Like I just don't think that that's what that may be, but what some people do. But I think that's what they've always done. Yes. Yeah, so Basically, that- you're talking about. Is this about manipulation? Because, I mean, well, how social is, is manipulation? It just involves other people, but not their agency. So self-agency, so it doesn't seem genuinely social to me. Well, I also think that we have to change. Manipulation does not need to be pejorative. Like, I, I have no, honestly, like, I feel like. What's a good, let's hear about a good manipulation. I encourage people to call me and tell me how awesome I am and then ask me to do something. Because I will probably say yes. And I would much prefer to be told how awesome I am than just asked because I'm likely to say no then, and I like making people happy. Um, if I think you're disingenuine, then you probably didn't get to call me to begin with. So, you know, there's always, there's always a boundary there. It doesn't work for everybody or anything. But it goes beyond that. It's sort of like, you know, I, if you want certain sets of outcomes, there's ways of getting there with me and, and probably with everybody. You know, since but if, I'm you want it, then it, if you want it, then it doesn't sound manipulative, then you're, you're choosing it. No, uh... I, you know, no, it's true. I just, I just don't think that – I think manipulation, if you're only defining it as pejorative, as like, yes, then it's bad. But I think often there are levels to it that are okay. Like when there's dishonesty involved in manipulation, it's really not okay. Right. I just don't think it's all about dishonesty. I think, you know, I, I – my email – everything I do is manipulative. Like I write really short emails so you'll respond to them. Right. Well, also, that's the point. You know, ninety percent of our brains is is trying to model other people so we can manipulate them or stop them manipulating us. You know, that that's 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 why we have cerebellums. Um, as so, long as we're transparent, it doesn't matter. Like, and as long as like you know, we it, that, that part of it, you know, is obviously crucial. But I would prefer that people honestly, like, it's much. If if you want something from me, sending me a short email is a good way to get it. <laughs> With apparently enough words to say how awesome you are in it, so you need a few words. Yes. Telling me I suck uh, not get me to do anything. I promise you that. <laughs> yeah. Although, although sometimes people will try that as their technique of supposedly getting you involved. God, I'd have a conversation with this fundraiser in the Toronto Jewish community who thought somehow telling, how can we get people to be participatory? But let me tell you what's wrong with you. I'm like, I don't think that's going to work. I think you might know want to start with what's wrong with you guys for not being here. Not a good opener for participation. But by the way, that does work for some people. Like, I'm just not one of them. Like, encouragement. Like, if you're really critical of my work and I know my work is really good, I stop trying. That works for other people. It will make them try doubly as hard. For me, I, I, li- I need and like encouragement, and I encourage and manipulate encouragement. <laughs> encouragement is good for all. So... Sarah, you're a, you self-describe as a champagne socialist. Can you explain, I'm curious, what you mean by that and also how this kind of, I guess it sounds like, it, does it feel like a kind of socialism to you? What, what does what feel like a socialism? I missed a word there, sorry. This, this stuff, the stuff you're trying to build and you're in social design. Oh, definitely. Like, I, I would sort of connect it through through that. And I guess, like, when I say socialism, like, it's what you see 
you know, in Europe. Uh, it's not, it's not what people would define as fascism or communism. Uh, and, you know, may not have been practiced that way, but for me, like it means providing roads and schools and healthcare, um, more so than anything else. Uh, my grandfather actually ran for vice president as a socialist, uh, with Norman Thomas in the thirties. And, you know, I think it's about social democracy. It's certainly, it's not, a, and it's also not in opposition to rewarding people for their effort. It's just about making sure that, you know, we also take care of people to, so that society can move forward. Uh, so I've gotten into a weird political definition of socialism that probably isn't particularly accurate, but that's where I come from on it. And I guess, like, I, I'm interested in rebranding the word and the idea. Designing water participation. What? I do think the systems that you're, you're being hired to design, are they socialist? I mean, I think that, yeah, I mean, my definition of socialism isn't everybody else's, but yeah, I think that like the idea of participation, that's, that's really what it is, right? Like I think publishing is more about the idea of, of privileging certain sets of voices and participation is about, you know, fostering everybody's, fostering everybody's participation and their voice and encouraging their, their ability to share it. So I don't know. I guess that's how, like, a socialism, socialist, uh, social systems, they're not too far apart, social design. It's about, really, it is about creating a better outcome for the world and for people um, rather than uh, encouraging goods for only a small segment. God, that's a terrible more definition. I'm sorry. <laughs> more good, more people. Okay, well, we're getting, we're getting kind of uh, at the end of our time. We usually do a little news uh, stuff at the beginning, but I think we're going to discuss a little bit at the end. Do you have time to, to want to talk about um, air, air, fake Arab lesbians for five to ten minutes with us before we wrap up the show? Sarah? Yeah. Uh, I want to throw one other thing out there, just to clarify one thing, and then I will talk about Arab fake lesbians in, in a second. I think the thing that I, I'm becoming drawn to is I've been thinking a lot about the idea of, of, of both being an imposter and protecting ourselves from, from impostership. And I, very, I, don't, I actually don't feel like much of an imposter because I, I have, for some reason, at a young age, recognized that very few people actually know what they're doing. But I think it's a really, it's an interesting way to look at designing participation and designing and, and social design generally. Because really what you're doing is you're winding, with, through transparency, you're making sure that you protect yourself from the possibility of transparency by forcing collaboration and forcing people to share the information that make sure that you can't you know, that you actually can't be much of an imposter. That makes sense? That might be a nice wrap-up. That's, a, that's a nice link into the um, fake Arabic lesbians yes. thing, because that, exactly. that's exactly what happened. It, it, exactly. It's a hugely constructed narrative that people said, but this can't possibly be fake. Well, I've been talking to it over five years. Exactly. Thank you, Kevin, for, for making me remember why I was telling you that to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we just said her again. Damn, hang on. Just... The technology hates us today. <laughs> okay. Kevin? Yes. Can you grab back in? Okay, did you did you miss the tail end of that movie? Hello. Okay. All right. So what I heard, sorry about our drop off there, was you said something about uh transparency creating manipulation, and that confused me. I don't see that. I'm not so by the way, sure I agree with you about this manipulation stuff. I I I'll enjoy sort of 
placing a hold there for future, um, not agreement, but we don't have time to, to do more about it now. We could do an after show. Uh, but I'm, so you're talking about wrapping stuff up by seeing uh, social design as uh, something that if you have transparency, it's a kind of, is that what you meant to say that if, if you, if part of creating social design is transparency, then you're protecting yourself from, from fakery and imposters. Yes. And Kevin, did, made, did I hear that right? Yes. And Kevin made the point that that was the perfect lead in. And that's actually why I realized I wanted to share it with you. It but is yeah. a great lead in. Perfect. Sorry. I didn't, I didn't get to hear him because I have all kinds of technical delights tonight. Okay. So first of all, Sarah, thank you so much for um, sharing a lot about what you've been doing and, um, and your journey. I know you didn't really maybe want to talk so much about Hollywood, but I think it's, it's old hat to you, but not necessarily to everybody else. You know, I think you've had a unique viewpoint. There are not a lot of people who work that much between kind of networked space and storytelling. So I think I it is interesting. I can't help but be resistant to Hollywood. Uh, but yes, it, I mean, I, I, it is, and I think it is like a sort of fans, fantastic moment where we're transitioning Hollywood into other aspects of communication and products. Yeah, it's a time for a lot of change. So let's move into fake Arab lesbians. It's an interesting moment. We had a week where, uh, well, it was kind of an interesting week for the gays in general. As everyone knows, I, I pay attention to Tracy Morgan decided to, it's an interesting thing. Speaking of transparency, when you do comedy as a comic, do you mean what you're saying or is it quote unquote, just a joke? Or is that sort of personally, I, I find people saying something's just a joke to be also like saying we're wired that way. I find both of those lines to be complete utter cop-outs of personal responsibility for having wanted or done something. Um, so anyway, Tracy Morgan went off uh, speaking of transparency to show in Nashville and uh, someone gay in the audience went home and blogged about it in detail, it became a huge story and resulted in glad making statements. His boss at 30 Rock, Tina Fey, having to make statements, NBC, him having to apologize, uh, he said a bunch of stuff, including that gay people aren't really gay. God didn't make them gay. It's not a choice. And he would stab his kid if he was gay. And I, I don't know the affect because we didn't get to your audio. But because someone else got to tell a story about it, as Sarah pointed out earlier, the Internet got to blow up all about that. Now, what everybody thinks about what he said and a lot more from mostly comics, especially Chris Rock and, and Louis C.K. about uh, how important it is that he gets to be stupid publicly and unfunny and how, how that's very important. Um, that's his right. And they would want to live in a country where he could. And days later, uh, we found out that Amina Roth, who had gotten this, this blogger, supposed blogger that had gotten a lot of attention because having posts and others had picked up uh, her blogging about her father standing up for her in Syria, where government goons were coming after her, that she'd been disappeared. And then, with very short amount of time passing, once that was looked into, Liz Henry at Blogger and some other people started to feel like Amina wasn't real, what people call a sock puppet, sort of a fake uh, internet presence. And it turns out after real reporting was done, she was actually not real. She was a married white dude in Edinburgh. Um, and then one of the lesbian uh, blogs she had posted to called Les Get Real was also run by a married white dude. <laughs> so neither of these women were Arab. Uh, lesbians at all so this is go ahead sir from the outset it was hard for me to believe that there was a well-known out lesbian syrian vlogger from from the outset just as and why for you was that obviously difficult because many people have noted in the sense that this blog was sort of perfectly written for the west and one of the reasons it got the sort of attention it did in the west is it fit sort of the knowledge or lack of knowledge of western folks of the life of 
people in Syria, let alone someone who'd been gay there. It's a repressive place. Like, I would be all for there being that in existence. I just feel like it's not, you know, as far as my knowledge of Syrian politics, it's not the most easy country to be an English-speaking, out-of-the-closet, publicly gay person. But I mean, are there a lot? I mean, are there lots of out Syrian lesbian bloggers that I am unaware of? I could be missing an entire segment of publication. No, for the, the most I can pick up, it's very difficult. In the reading I've been doing since then, people have had a tough time uh, being out. Not only that, but this blog, uh, "Gay Girl in Damascus," it was called. That it in fact made it more difficult for people. Yes. Um, to be out and that they were, I'm going to post some links to some, um, some responses here about that in the, in the chat room. But that was the, the thing is that this, this blog, um, had been written and it had fooled a lot of people because the, the guy actually had a reasonable amount of knowledge of, of the area. And his whole sort of justification was, I was trying to tell the story of this area that nobody listens to. And, but then he, he got carried away with the narrative with this fictional character and, and um, was 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 trying to you know end the narrative by getting her arrested and that and that triggered people finding that that, that this wasn't ah. real. you know I think it's fascinating like I actually think that like it's not like the guy who had all these evil intents like you know obviously he wrote good English which is not necessarily <laughs> like the primary skill of experience uh, you know and he obviously obeyed certain sets of structure that like continue to involve people in being interested in the story. And I, I think that none of it would have been a big deal had the uprising in Egypt, you know what I'm saying? Like we wouldn't be looking at this if, if the world hadn't changed so much, uh, since Sierra square. And I, you know, so I'm not sure about the timeline. When did you start the blog? Does anyone know? Oh gosh. I don't have that fact, but a while ago, it's, it wasn't that recent. He, he, made, he made the character up. He was trying to to come up with a character, so he he made up this character and joined a bunch of social networking sites as her and performed her for a while. And then he started the blog a year ago or something, um, as a, as but he already had the persona constructed within the social networks. So there was this very yeah, deliberate thing going on. I guess I guess I just think that a like especially because it was that longer. I think that that's what people do. I think that like once it became clear that people were taking that part of it seriously, like there is an obligation to tell the truth. I just, I think that, like, you know, part of this is about how do we look at this, like, you know, what becomes impostership in a day, you know, in an age of transparency where you can track servers. I mean, I think, it, you know, it's an interesting art project if portrayed as an art project. If portrayed as, like, he was trying to defraud people, I certainly don't think that's where he started, though, right? Well, no, he, he said his, in his justification... the lot of people, many people. Um, he, he, part of his justification... Kevin? was um, he said that when he entered the discourse as uh, a white European man, nobody would listen to him, so he wanted to speak with a, with a voice that people would listen to. Oh, God. I, exactly. I would like to quote, I need to quote Banksy here, who said that no one would listen to him until they didn't know who he was. <laughs> but this, there's, you know, there's a history of this. That I, I remember there were a couple of blogs before there's um, the um, Strumpet, which is this uh, fake PR blogger character, Amanda Chappell. Yeah. Who is, yeah. you know, obviously a man um, in the, you know, he, he, he used to ring up Technorati and complain about us indexing him. Um, and, <laughs> they, you know, there's this, but was constructed as a, as, a, as a woman for this narrative. And there was the Libertarian Girl. So there is this pattern of, of 
um, I'm female impersonation to get more attention for the um, for, the, for their privileged viewpoint. I don't think it's just about being female. I, I guess I just think that it depends on what you want attention for. Like, I think if you're a white male, there's plenty of ways of getting attention. It, as, I think it's very hard to get attention as a white male for being a Syrian lesbian woman. <laughs> like, yeah. that's true. But, like, you know, the guy that's running BP Oil seems to be doing okay in terms of the attention department. I don't know. I think that there are, and I also would just say in terms of the literary canon, it's not like, you know, I mean, there's, there's no lack of white male successful fiction writers. We're successful well, I mean, authors. We, we saw the same thing happen with JT Leroy, where, you know, if you can posture yourself as publicly queer, because these are the most oppressed voice, right? It's looking for who's the most oppressed uh, voice in the picture. And, um, that's where you think there's a sort of leverage point for attention. The question is also, you want to talk about social design. Once you believe this and you pass it on, I know I initially uh, in, believed. I didn't spend a ton of time, and I knew about hoaxes online for a long time. Um, I posted quotes from um, the, the, one, the one about the father telling protecting supposed daughter. Maybe we're more important telling off people. Heather, you're breaking up a bit. Kevin, are you having the same? Yes. Um, I think you're raising a question, if I heard it correctly, Heather, which was, I'm not sure if it matters, if it's having the impact of empowering people to do something. Obviously, like, harming people is not good. But, like, this is kind of the role that I think from the beginning of the show that we would argue art's about. It's, like, kind of pushing boundaries and pushing people pushing people to, to react, to, to feel something, to do something. But I'm not sure what we're suggesting about him. I think he should have been more apologetic and probably come out, you know, admitted it sooner. Um, so this is a matter of not, again, I think doing things that to me are the opposite of what I see as good social experience creation, which is uh, if you want genuine engagement from the degree which I've, I've experienced making it or seeing it happen, it comes best when people speak. Not saying you can't speak of other experiences. It's obviously what art is about, but this wasn't an artistic experience in this particular case. And um, it becomes less open to real engagement when you've got when you don't have authenticity there. I mean, the trust obviously is completely gone now. Nobody will believe him about anything. Um, it'll make it harder to believe other people who are speak, trying to speak with this voice from that place. You'll have to really have somebody actually say, "This is me." And yet, as you started off with saying, Sarah, it's it's quite dangerous. For people in Syria who are gay to be out, well, but um, I just want to he point created a, a wait, fictional wait, wait. position from which he believed someone could be out. But so, wait, Heather. The one thing is, I do think that he did actually say in his blog that, like, I, I don't think that he hid the, the. There was some part of it that mentioned that it was fictional. The no. other thing, though, that I just think is actually just a reality. No, no, the, the, absolutely. The that's absolutely not. That's not true. He did not at all try to say it was fictional. Okay, but, but but I'm going to raise another point that is that leaves that aside. I, I'm not, I wonder though how much like we're saying that like how we can allow this kind of expression and whether or not you know it is it is okay. Like I think that you always knew that you didn't know who people were. I'm not sure that like you know how we necessarily. I don't know. I'm not sure that that we should you know ban people from creating characters. I think that that's what you know the internet's been about. 
Well, I, I haven't certainly said that, or I don't think we should ban it. I think it's just not effective ongoing social engagement or politically useful. I mean, all those things I don't think are, I'm not saying you're banned. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I didn't think that you were saying necessarily banned. It's just, it's kind of like, there's questions of where it's okay to be an imposter and where you have to be real. And I guess sometimes, like, if the advice is coming from a fictional voice and it helps you to, you know, make your life better, does it matter? I, well, I guess I was just asking you this. Is, like, is it okay? Like, here's the thing. is like, actually, like, a fictional voice could be helpful at certain times. And I think that, like, part of what we're doing in building this world through apps ranging from Instagram to color is that we're blurring the lines of authenticity everywhere, like, it's very hard to tell if anything is real anymore. I thought you were saying at the end of our of our conversation earlier that by having transparency everywhere, which is necessary, imposters are more difficult. So which is it? I think imposters are more difficult. There's a difference between the creation of an identity and you as an individual yourself being an imposter. Like, I think it's much easier to create fake identities. But I think right. that it, for me, let's put it this way. If you look up Sarah Solovitz, you're not going to have that hard of a time of figuring out who I am. Me creating Sarah Sullivan, I could get away with and create another set, another identity. But the, the difference is, is that the, the, the actual person that you are is, I think, hard to get past Tra- like because of transparency. The person that you've made up is a different question. Does that, does that make sense? Say for, say for Anthony Weiner. Yes. For Anthony Weiner, if Anthony, well, if he had created another identity that wasn't actually him, it would have been much more difficult. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you're saying you can't avoid kind of being found out based on your real life because of the open the systems we have now. More like we find out what you've done, but if you create some kind of artificial person, it takes longer. I still think it's once there was enough interest in figuring out what what happened, it was impossible to keep the fiction up which is also interesting but a lot of people had to really want to look into something on the ground which is what happened people had to do actual you know reporting yeah but i think it it goes beyond this i think that like in terms of credibility like i i had at this moment where i was like oh it's getting like that does transparency does save lots of things but there are there is this sort of instagram color filter question that that does allow simultaneously allow more invention and less clarity. And it's not that I'm backing away from my point about transparency so much as what I'm saying is, is that like you can create fakery far fakery that, that is harder to prove as much as it's harder to get away from what's real. Does that make sense? No, I, I, I I think I, I got that earlier. Yeah. I'm just saying that I still think, um, once there's general interest, because you can say do the kind of distributed Oh, we lost it again. I think a lot of people in Arab nations already didn't believe it from the get-go. From now, from I've done a lot more reading since then, since, since well, this I happened. But that. once enough people want to figure out what people just can't go back. I guess I look at it like, did you believe the sign in the McDonald's window? Yeah. Like, I'm I would never believe. I mean, I, I'm a, I, 
I mean, I'm a, someone in the West who at this point believes nothing, almost nothing from a corporation. Very little, unless it's, it's like if there's an iPhone invented, I believe it because I can touch it and feel it. But a general marketing <laughs> promise? No, I, until it's acted upon, I wouldn't believe it. Now, this was the, the hoax this week that McDonald's would have charged uh, black people an extra 150 because of recent crime. Yes, which is, I mean, for me, like, it falls along the lines, and maybe it's because I, like, I have studied politics and worked in politics for a long time, like, but, like, Syria is a pretty, like, you know, it's not known as the most uh, relaxed regime on the planet. And, you know, being, there being, like, an out English-speaking lesbian blogger that, like, people knew who she was, like, seemed very outside of a culture that where. Well, I guess it's not, I don't know about women in driving Syria, but in Saudi, like, you know, these, these are some cultures where women aren't allowed to drive. So, I don't know. Yeah, he, did, he went pretty roundabout. His character grew up in the U.S. and had a father that was connected to the regime. And there was a whole, like, kind of way trying to get someone to say these things. But, but in a way, they just reflect um, how, much, how powerful transparency is. There is nothing more powerful than hearing someone speak as themselves. The question is, can we hear someone from Syria who's gay actually afford to speak as themselves? Can, are they safe enough to do it? Uh, that's the key question. And are we still interested in trying to figure out about their lives or no? Are we just going to be interested in this person who lied to us instead of finding out about all the queer folks who live in these countries who are incredibly oppressed? Um, and as a recent point, I read, uh, I wish I could, I think I posted the link earlier and to some degree have been used by Western, the U S government as sort of a legitimation of their invasion, right? Like we're going to have, we're going to have wars in Iraq, we're going to have wars in Afghanistan because women can't drive because it's, you know, they don't treat women well, it's unequal. We need to liberalize these cultures. Now there's oppressed gay people. Israel uses this all the time, right? Gay people are so oppressed in the Middle East, but not here. We're doing I don't What's think that? that justifying going to war about, I, I mean, I have not seen anybody justify going to war in Iraq because we're, because of women's rights or in Afghanistan. I think that it's true. Oh, well, that's totally, that's totally, that's totally some of the PR that was done by, by the U.S. government. Totally. You didn't yeah, see those stories? I, All this stuff about how press were? Listen, I understand the situation in Afghanistan, and I understand that one of the side results is that, you know, maybe women will be educated. But I don't actually think that that would, I mean, I, I would be really surprised to hear, I, I'm not saying it's not a side, you know, thing that happens, but I don't know. I, 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 would, I would be astonished to hear that. Uh, I think it was about Al-Qaeda. Yeah, but the, it was part of, a, speaking of storytelling, it was part of the storytelling. It was, go ahead, Kevin. It was about Al-Qaeda, but then it became about the Taliban, and then the narrative of cultural suppression was brought in. Yeah. Yes. And I mean, here's the thing is like, I think the world is better where women know how to read. Like I, we're not going to, you know, there's not really much of a disagreement. I'm just, I'm just, I'm not so sure. I'm just, I guess I'm not so sure that I think that that's why we would go there, but let's move on into, into the question I think that you were actually asking, which is like, whether or not, how we, how we do gain a view into the lives of people uh, in an authentic manner and how we can, facilitate, I guess, really systems. That if our, yeah, if our focus, if our focus is creating social systems that are genuinely broadly participatory, which is why I'm interested in Tumbling and why when I do live environments where I try to have stories from lots of people, 
I make always, um, I found, at least in real time rooms, which is where I have my most experience, that trying to talk to people who are whatever the outsider status in the room is gets more emotional intimacy, more bang for the buck in the room fastest, and that it's best that people it's best that people speak about their own experience, period. It's just always more emotionally engaging. It's not always easy to get people to do. And it's, in my case, been a human skill. And there's sort of principles I've found that help make it more likely that I think you could design the systems for sure. But it helps to know someone's listening to you, just for starters, and actually paying attention. It's one of the most valuable, powerful thing I think we have, which is why I don't think any of the systems we design will work as well as they could without knowing there's another person there, whether it's the person next to you or someone else who's a tumbler or whatever they're going to get called, community manager, CEO, doesn't matter. It's somewhere in this in a side of this inter- interaction to make it real. If you feel like, hey, you can you can um, give a disingenuous story, you're going to make a fiction that maybe accomplishes something, then then what if you have fictional attention? Oh, no one was there. We just created bots to make you think that someone responded to what you were doing, but there's no one actually there. I guess here's the thing is I think it just, it's not like, I think that there's times where authenticity is crucial and times where it it really isn't. Like, I think that like last week, somebody, uh, Nelson Mandela, you know, he sort of was recognizing that part of why apartheid was fought was because playwrights and producers on Broadway started paying attention and writing fiction about it. And so, like, you know, at the end of the day, like, there's obviously, like, you know, Uh, people, there's a different... Unfortunately, you cut out. I I couldn't hear that. Oh, like, and Nelson Mandela was pointing out that, like, you know, part of the success of changing the regime in South Africa really came about and came into crucial, like, the attention of the world because people were writing fiction about it that was being shown on Broadway. Yeah, but it's also fiction that let you know it was fiction. Yeah, it's a very interesting question, this kind of blurring. Which I'm, I'm just, I feel like sometimes it really matters and sometimes it doesn't, but that may be just too pat of an answer. All right, well, it's, it's <laughs> Ke- Kevin? Well, that's, that, that, is the, that is the question. Is it how far are you? Are you still here with us? If we just I, I'm still here. Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, it's how far you can justify the, the fictionalization of, um, of narrative to, yeah. to make a point. That's the, you know, we're, we're going to get into Orwell territory here where... Um, he, he talks about this, at, you know, a great length in his essays about the the point of the point of writing is to influence people. So you have, need to be, you know, but you're better off doing that by telling by telling the truth. Um, but you may have to tell the truth through fiction, and that 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 then that gets very weird. You get into a deep circle there. Yeah, you get into the question of like when is propaganda okay, effectively? Right. Right. And- and I mean, I, maybe we're not, we're going to have to end this show with questions, but if we're trying to create participatory social platforms, uh, when is it useful for them to be fictional as well? Because people can fictionalize into a system. I mean, I think the more time my hunch is the more time it takes from you to be inauthentic about it, uh, the more damage it does to you as a person. I think in the long run, being authentic to yourself is damaging to self. I think the creation of the sort of useful lie of art is that you're being authentic to yourself and making it. And that's why it's so healing and powerful for people to make it. But if you're doing it in order to um, distance from yourself, from how you really are, it's a kind of numbing of the self, which on a larger scale, it's kind of where, you know, the problems in American culture, other cultures come from. I think it's like a lot of mass numbing, a lot of addiction economy or, 
But this is the thing is that, and I just come back to this because I actually just think it's an important question. It's like, so this guy, the Scottish guy, reality is, is that like, you, I, I, as far as I know, and I, I may be incorrect about this, but like, it's not actually like kind of safe or, or really legal to be an out lesbian blogger in Syria. No, quite. Bring attention to that, to that reality is probably a useful thing, right? But he didn't bring attention to that. He created the opposite experience. I don't think he's helped. I think he's made it worse. Yes. I, I know he's made it. I feel pretty strongly he's made it worse. And I think if you talk to any actual Syrian lesbian blog, they're the people who matter, first of all. Women, uh, yeah, Syrian lesbian we're folks in. We all hang out with. Let's. <laughs> well, there are. I don't know how many of them are able to, able to, uh, to blog. And that's more of a to me. My point, Heather, is only I, I agree with you that I, I'm, I'm not sort of judging or not judging his actions. But the point that we're having the conversation about whether there can be a Syrian lesbian blogger is probably a useful one for aspiring Syrian lesbian bloggers. I apologize, by the way, for anybody that has been on the message boards because Hi. I seem to get on it. But I don't want to be ignoring anybody's comment. But I will try to do afterwards. Sorry. Mostly, I mean, right now we've got um, xenophrenia saying that Edward Benai's uh, Anne Rand, and I don't know who Ivy is, is a trifecta evil, is Lee, Ivy Lee. I don't know who, that, who this is, but maybe a PR person <laughs> like uh, Bernice. Um, they probably, I'd say we have a room mostly in favor, I don't know if Jerome's still there, of authenticity for its own sake. Lucy speak. Uh, Sarah, thanks a lot for. for for taking being so patient for technical difficulties and, and talking about, um, I think it's really interesting, maybe just because it mirrors a little bit of my own, you know, change over time. But I think you have really interesting formulations of, of the questions you're facing and sort of say, okay, what, what did I was interested in, in law about, or I was interested in, in storytelling for, I think those are really interesting and useful. And I think that's a good question generally to ask. And it sounds like the first question you even ask your clients, right? Like, what are you trying to do? Why, why do you want to do this for what? Um, so you're really lucky because I, I, I'm found like, especially through like learning how to like just taking this, this semester teaching at the media lab, like teaching social design for like the first time, what was really nice for me to be able to do was actually apply these kinds of principles to the way that I w was pursuing the job, which was kind of like, let it, instead of publishing at people, encouraging participation in what I was doing. And I don't know, it's been, it's, it's actually, I find it, I find one of the nicest things, one of the biggest privileges and blessings that I have is that like, I'm able to, through the, my path, not know what I'm doing and be too stupid to know any better in order to sort of reach something bigger and to, to create something new. And that's been awesome. And I feel really lucky for it. This has been a fun conversation. We took up the recording and it'll be a good time editing this one. Thanks to producer Andrew Hazlitt, who, you know, valiantly tried to make it. Deb Schultz will be back here with us next week. We'll be with Joe Ito um, next week in a couple of weeks, who will be the new director of MIT Media Lab, which will be awesome. Uh, more and more. Social design, that's kind of where everything's at, certainly what I've been my own ways working at. Kevin, anything you want to share with people this week, let them know about? No, no nothing coming up. I uh, just yeah. gave uh, Sarah as a project or a URL you want to tell people? Uh, not at the moment, but soon. And uh, I will definitely, I, I, I would be delighted to come back and do whatever you ask, even if I didn't hear it. <laughs> oh, Wow.
<laughs> That's power. If you didn't hear me. Well, I gave a recent, uh, I did a bunch of talks in Australia. I just got back. I don't know. I, my audio has been bad. So I hope you guys can hear me. I connect up at gathering and, and also at Google Sydney. And I have a new project. I've just put the URL in with heathergold.com where I'm trying to work much more uh, deeply about emotionally what I think is going on to connection on small and larger scale work and um, how an intimacy economy kind of happens or how the intimacy happens. And you can see some of that talk there. I'd love feedback from all of you. There's an open Google doc for that. And if you'd like me to come, I'm going to write this, this book socially. So I'm going to do it by giving talks in different places. So let me know if you'd like me to come do one where you are. And uh, next next up, we'll be back here next Thursday. And um, after that, we'll all be at Contact Con with Doug Rushkoff and Vanessa Niemis in New York in October. That's for sure. But uh, there may be more before that. We'll keep you posted. So then we'll see you here next week. Thanks for joining us. And thanks, Andrew Hazlitt. Good night, everybody. Thanks.